0: Hi, I'm Jack LeBrock. Hi, I'm David Reynolds, and you're listening to Inside Supercars. From the racetracks across Australia, and here's Inside Supercars.
1: Welcome to Inside Supercars, Tony Whitlock and Craig Gravel, and we've got a bit of a different show this week, because we're looking at the watchmen, the watchmen of supercars, the ones who have been making sure that the drivers keep themselves on the straight and narrow and not at the expense of somebody else. We've talked to three of the men who set up what is now the chair taken by Craig Baird, but it was Colin Bond, Thomas Mazira and Jason Barguana. Each of these men, they're a success in their own right in motor racing. Each of them had very different careers and they give us an insight into what's involved in being a driving standards observer. And listen back because it's gonna be an interesting tour on the job of driving standards. Welcome to the show, Colin. Oh, thank you. Great to be here. Wonderful to have you here. And Jason. Yeah, no, it's great. Uh, thanks Tony. And- uh, hi, Cole. We're all uh, we're all here together, so it's uh, it's great to catch up and, and have a chat about our lives. Welcome, Thomas. Another day in sunshine, another day in,
2: in heaven. Oh, yeah, yeah, sunshine. Sunshine's all right, but I don't know about heaven, mate. Yeah, not there yet. If there's a golf course in your life, that's close to heaven, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, that'll be right, yeah, yeah. And, yeah, I'm much happier there than anywhere else, and, uh, even if I'm having a shit game, you know? And, uh, but... Uh,
1: yeah, yeah, if you're playing well, then uh, that's, uh, that's a good place to be. So, Colin, I know of your history starting in things like Link Peugeot's and various things like that, but take us back through the early days of your career as a racing driver before you got to the Holden dealer team.
3: Oh, my God, we haven't got enough time, though, I don't think. Um, basically, <laughs> I'll keep it short. Well, we started Mitsubishi Rally in these little cold fastbacks, you know, back in the 60s. Uh, did a round Australia rally you know, in a Volkswagen. Then we bought the Lynx Peugeot from Bob Holden. We won the New South Wales Oakland Championship three times, came second in Australia on two occasions. Then sold that and then in 69 we went to the Holden dealer team of course with Harry for seven years and during that time we had three rally championships, plus a touring car championship, plus a Bathurst. Then we went to Ford with Moffat, you know, and that one too was obviously fairly well being um, publicised. And you know, in doing that, we also took over the, the rally program at Ford, which was the BDA escorts, which were fantastic. A lot of fun. I was able to bring out the world champions at the time and drive, you know, our cars out here in the Southern Cross Rally. Pure Molda garden Hansel, series the first time, and then... Harry Batman and David Richards the second time. And then after that I mean we had a various lot of things with the Master and Holmes, we uh, in Capri's, we drove the, the Porsche, you know, for Alan Hamilton, the 944. Um and then touring, well, Alfa Mayo's many a things with that. And then we sort of Toyota towards the end with Freddie Gibson was probably the last Bathurst I did with them.
1: Indeed. So that's about where I started in Pit Lane. <laughs> um, and, of course, throughout that time, you um, were both on bitumen and on, on the dirt. Did you have a preference for either of those?
3: Oh, look, I think it depends on what you want to do. I always just say if you just have to do one thing, you, you do the bitumen because you, you sort of go to the race meeting on a, on an afternoon and go home that night. You know, there's nothing worse being broken down in the middle of a forest somewhere in pouring rain in a rally car, you know, and... and But anyway, those things happen. But I I always used to like rallying in one respect because I think really, if you tried really hard rallying, you actually went faster. Whereas in motorsport and tickly sort of racing, I think sometimes you can overdrive and you become become a little bit more of a robot, I think, just to do the the right thing every lap after lap after lap and and that's the way you win races.
1: Well, let's cross over now to Jason, to his driving career. And of course, like uh, Colin, one of batters, it was in a different era and a different sort of car. Bugs, your career started in Formula V, am I correct?
0: No, you're correct there, Tony. And it's very exciting to hear Colin talk about that sort of stuff because, um, as a kid, he was one of my idols, and I used to grow up, you know, dreaming about being one of the Colin Bonds of the world and and watching him race around. I mean, he, uh, as Colin mentioned, started in hill climbing. Well, I did a bit of Formula V in in the hill climb championship as well, the New South Wales Hill Climb Championship. So, in a sense, we both kind of kicked off our careers at a you start at the bottom of the hill, you work your way to the top. You do that for uh, four or five runs for the day, and and it's a good way to start off in motorsport. But um, you know, once from for me, we got through the the uh, hill climbing stuff onto circuit racing, and yeah, it was Formula V. A um, few bits and pieces here and there, but when when it was really got serious, is when I uh, went to the bank, borrowed money, bought a Formula Ford, had uh, run around, slept in the car, all that sort of stuff, and uh, and and really got serious about trying to make something out of motorsport. So. Did Formula Ford, Formula Holden, went and raced overseas a little bit, but um, that led to the opportunity to be part of that Young Lions program, and then um, you know, obviously, getting uh, provisional pole at Bathurst one day and then crushing the thing the next is never good, but it opened up the opportunity to uh, to join Gary Rogers, and and you know, that's when it um, really took off for me as a as a as a career. Someone actually was going to pay me to drive their race car. I couldn't believe it. I
1: thought it was fantastic. what Formula afford is what you carved your. Uh your career in that's where you started it, and that's where you made your name tell us about that experience uh
2: yeah like it's
1: you know first of all uh,
2: i i can tell you that you know the my best years i was bloody either in a refugee camp in austria or, or working three jobs in sydney trying to save up money for a for a race car and uh, i really get into it quite late and uh, I think I was. Uh, I think I think I was 24 when I bought a race car and uh, bought a Formula Ford in uh, in Sydney and uh, kind of started with it. And uh, you know the good thing about Formula Ford those days was that uh, you can sort of have a couple of jobs and uh, and uh, can make enough money to go racing with it. And uh, which was which was great, you know. Like these days, it's completely different. You need multi-million, no, oh, million, or hundreds of thousands dollars budget to to drive in a Formula Ford, and uh, if you're not in the right team, then uh, you you sort of uh, a little bit disadvantaged, You know, you need to be with the right team and uh, and the right people around you to sort of make your make a name for yourself. But in the old days, like you know, you could you could buy some shitbox, cheap shitbox, and get out there and uh, and give it a go, and that's what I did, and uh, and I was lucky enough. I kind of uh, uh, did enough, and uh, when uh, a Kiwi bloke named David Hayden, you know, bought a bought a brand new art from England, and uh, and I was lucky enough. He wanted me to drive it, and uh, and that gave me you know, the real break. And uh, once I got in that car, then I, I did well. I did really well, yeah, at one stage. I think I won all the races in one year. And, uh, yeah, that was, yeah, that started started my career.
1: So you had your career driving in the Touring Car Championship and at uh, one stage then uh, teaming up with uh, Peter Brock as the second driver. Um, how did the job come up as the- the DSO, you you obviously stopped driving full time in the championship.
2: I was doing, uh, I was still driving, but I was doing DSO for Carrera Cup because at that time I already sort of, you know, was working for Porsche with the driving school. And uh, yeah, then I did a DSO when uh, Jamie Blake, you remember Jamie when he was running it? Of course. Yeah, yeah. Then, uh, you know, Jamie sort of came up and said, oh, you want to do DSO for Carrera Cup, then I, yeah, then I did it, and I, I don't know, I probably did it two years, two or three years or something, and, uh, and then, uh, then, uh, Wayne, Wayne Kadek, from V8, you know, Wayne Kadek rang me up and said, oh, will you be interested to do the, you know, DSO for a, uh, for a V8, and, and, and uh it's kind of nothing happened for a year and uh then sort of a year later i think uh i think bondi decided you know to step down then uh you know went came back and uh and we did a deal and uh and i did it for 5 years you know and uh and i really only stopped doing it because i uh i just uh qualified for the... For the PGA seniors too, I got my card and uh, and I wanted to play more golf. Then uh, yeah, then I just sort of uh, you know was uh, was enjoying myself on a golf course and uh, and doing
1: that. Colin, what was the official title when you first were uh, involved? I know originally you were doing the two liter series.
3: Yes, that was for well, I think Kevin O'Reilly um, sort of organized that, you know, with um, Peter Wallerman. And he sort of said that, you know, it was happening overseas a little bit without having, you know, a driver come in and do driving standards. Well, it sort of started off two litre and it was fine. It was simple initially like a lot of things. And the reason why you probably need it today more than what we used to in the old days because I keep looking back and thinking, it was nice when you had sort of three different manufacturers, you know, or, or cars, I should say. And, they were, you know, it might be a Cortina and a, and a Falcon and a, and a Mini or something. And they were all capable of the same laptop, but they did it completely differently. So people got overtaken everything else when they had it to their advantage. But today, everyone's got the same equipment now, the same horsepower, the same gear ratios, the same tyres, the same everything. So it becomes more difficult to obviously overtake. And you say, well it's great you can have the whole field within a second or something like that, you know. But in hindsight it's just becomes fairly how can I say it, a little bit too squeaky clean, I think, in one respects, because, you know, you get penalized for, for sort of doing the wrong thing. But um you know, it's the old story. I always think that Whatever happens, whatever you try and do with the sport, the team with the most money usually wins, and it's sort of been the case, and particularly in motorsport.
1: So you were doing a DSO job in 2Litre, and then shortly after that, how did that move across to uh, the V8 series as it was then?
3: Well, I think the V8s were looking for someone, and Mark Scaife sort of asked me if I'd do it, you know, because I'd been doing it for the 2 litres. And I said, sure. And I mean we did it for nearly ten years, I think. In the end it was sort of something we started off like originally. We also we sort of helped, I suppose, with the with the, what the rules are going to be. But in the end, you know, that um, the V eights had their own sort of system and they they had the rules. So all you were virtually doing is being like a referee at a football match, and I used to say you don't make the rules, you just apply the rules. And we had a lot of equipment in those days to look at sort of things that have happened on the track and see if someone should get penalised for doing it. And uh, it sort of worked okay. And And I think that um, there's so much information there now with all the data you can get from the cars plus all the television coverage plus the, the cameras in the cars and what have you. So you can look at it afterwards and, and work out who did what to whom. But I think that... They used to always try and ask me in particular, say, look, what we'd like to do is sort of get, you know, the people on the dais, the right at the time, be the same ones. You don't want to sort of penalise someone that's already been up there and, and received a, you know, their first, second or third place. Um, so that was up to probably Peter Wallam and myself to a point. Um, before you went to the stewards, we could sort of organise, look at things, see if we decided to give someone a drive-through penalty or something like that in um, the way it went. But I think it works fairly well. And it's still going, of course, you know, and they've had quite a few number of people doing it, um, and even Bargs, of course, you know, and Thomas and so on. And I think they've all got, all got the same idea about what, what's actually happening and, and you just apply what the rules
0: are at the time.
1: Jason, how did you get involved
0: and when when did you get involved? Yeah, Tony, I mean, I think, as um, Colin just alluded to there, the early days of of, of obviously when Colin and Peter were in that role, um, you know, they would uh, adjudicate and make decisions and and the rules were the rules. And and look, as drivers, and that was an area when I was a driver, Colin was the the DSO or the Driving Standards uh, uh, Advisor then, I mean you respected what they did the way they went about it and and whilst you might not agree all the time you certainly understood what the the agenda was what they were trying to achieve you know so um but as time goes on and the, and the sport becomes more commercial and more uh, and bigger and more money's involved and there's more pride on the line the rules got tighter and tighter and tighter so um you know and and as that developed uh, it made it it made it easier when you're in that role to make those sorts of decisions and work out you know you, you understood what the role was and the way you went. Now I got involved because I think Thomas decided to step down. He was uh, he was doing it for a number of years and, and and did a great job. And they approached me and asked if I'd do it. I'd done a little bit of GT racing and a few things like that before. And and um, yeah, and I, I really enjoyed the role. They combined the role at that stage. What Peter mentioned there, uh, sorry, um, Colin mentioned Peter Wallerman there. So what when I. Um, took on the role, they combined the role of Peter and Colin, say, or Peter and Thomas, and I did both roles. So I was um, what they called the IPO and the DSO, so I had to do all the investigations and all the all that sort of stuff as well as make those uh, decisions. So it was a quite quite complex role, but the first thing I did, and coming from a driving point of view, as Colin did, you'd sit back and I asked the question, and I, I spoke to every driver and every team, and I wanted to understand what it is they wanted out of the role. So I really wanted to make sure that before we got to the very first race, we set a standard, uh, we understood what that standard was, we understood what the rule book was, we interpreted it all together, we, we read it, and then it was just a matter of applying it. So at the start of the year, before you got going, um, you understood how everyone wanted to play the game and, and on what side of the fence they'd sit on these incidents and then how it would work. So as the year went on, you then just have to make decisions based on that that pretense and, and go forward from there so it was pretty challenging I enjoyed it for three years
1: um, but you know obviously developing business and so forth it was a bit hard to continue doing it Colin you obviously were involved for quite a while which you must have seen the, the, both the job change and you know the way in which you carried it out and also the driving standard because there's an enormous difference between when you started in that late 90s to the early 2000s. I mean, the size of the series, as Jason said.
3: Oh, sure. As we said, it's, there's so much more um, stuff available, I guess, you know, like particularly all the data from the cars, you know, but you can't do that until after the event, more or less, um, to look at something. But it's, it's the order of, how can I say it? It's it's just a job. I think it's a job that, um, as I said, it's a bit like being a referee at a football match. And, um, you know, you, you penalise a Holden and then all the Ford people think you're silly and then you penalise a Ford and all the Holden people think you're great. So it just goes on and I think that's the same with the referees, football matches, by the way. But, look, it's, it's just something I did say for 10 years and um, in the end I sort of decided to give it up because, you know, I, I think Roland Dane wasn't that happy with me because so I wasn't agreeing with his ideas.
0: But um, that's the way it was. It's fascinating about A pillars and B pillars and all these little intricacies about who can do what to whom. Did, when did that really come in about talking about the position and uh, having a cut and dried decision on how far a car had to be up or when it was racing and when it was unsporting? i
3: go first if you like. That stems right from the beginning, you know, we sort of looked at it and they said, well, if the car's halfway up the car, you know, the car in front of him up to the B pillar and that sort of thing, you know, the other guy on the outside then should give him room. Except with that, there was when we used to go to South Australia and the very fast corner, you know, coming onto the back straight, we changed the rule for that. We said that unless you've got, you have no chance of, you know, no overlap and, because if two cars went around there at the same speed, at, you know, side by side, the current on the outside, we just crashed into the wall. And we had a couple of people, you know, seriously hurt there. So sometimes you can modify a rule, but it, you know, it would only happen in those sort of situations where one particular incident, you know, should be looked at, um, which it was, and, and that was the way that one worked. But, but most of the other times, you know, you... It's always hard because you might just say, look, you've got to get halfway up the car, but then you get someone that comes down, has a dive from about 10 car lengths back or something, you know, and crashes into the B pillar and says, well, I got there, you know, and then you are have to say, yeah, but that wasn't... <laughs> wasn't really the method we were looking at. But look, you know, apart from that, I mean look you could go on all day changing or looking at different variants of the rules. But the rules were pretty straightforward. We never made the rules in the end. I mean the VHC because they made the rules. Um and they would have talked in conjunction with the stewards and everybody else and then as Bargs and I said, we were just applying them as they wanted us to apply them.
0: Oh, I mean, yeah, Colt covered it. I mean, at the end of the day, the B pillar rule came in early in my driving career because it was a point in which you could declare that the car behind it was a fair and reasonable position to be. You can't just tap someone in the rear wheel. So, I mean, and that was always the guide that we used. So everyone, it's like I said earlier, um, if everyone understands what we're trying to work to, there's a consistency and the consistency was the B-filler. So if if you start working to that consistency, then you've got a reference point to adjudicate on and, and make a decision. And when there's um when there's no reference point, it makes it very hard. But, look, at the end of the day, Cole mentioned turn eight at Adelaide. Yeah, I mean, we, we certainly had the same thing. You'd have areas of the circuit and you'd say, right, oh, the lead car at that point has right away and we're only going to do that for that corner because it's the safest thing to do. Um, you know what, they're all professional people. They understand it. They understand the sport. When you communicate with them, they understand what you're talking about. And, and usually some of these incidents, and Cole will probably agree, you can see them happening from three and four corners before, and they and they all sudden we end up in a problem. Well, and there's also occasions where you can tell, and Cole will, will uh, um, adhere to it. I'm sure that, that there's always um, you know a bit from both sides. So you just got to determine which one had the most in, to play. If it's if it's two blokes going banging them wheels and doors and they both come off second
1: best, well that's motor racing. Get on with it, you know. Thomas, over the time that you were driving, you would have seen a fairly large change in the driving standard because the the overall competitiveness of the category through that period became super competitive, didn't it? Well, yeah, but like in the old days, you know, like
2: in the old days, you uh, kind of, uh, you know, it was maybe a little bit more respect, you know, among all the blokes and, uh, you know, sometimes you screw up and, uh, yeah, you put your hand up and... Uh, and it wasn't an issue, you know, like even even after I was doing it for about three years since we ate supercars, I said, well, Jesus, like, you know, you don't need a DSO, you know, like the, the, they all sort of uh, growing up and they, uh, yeah, I, I never thought there was a need, you know, much need for a DSO, but like uh, they, uh, they kept insisting on it and uh, because it was, sort of happening in all the other categories in the world as well. And, uh, yeah, then, uh, just, uh, yeah, but like people keep forgetting, like, you know, the job of a DSO is just to give recommendations, you know, like at the end of the day, you know, the stewards, they, they, there to, to do the job. They, are the ones issuing the penalties. They, the one, you know, deciding if it's right and wrong. And, uh, and I'm, I'm just giving the recommendation to the stewards and uh, the same to these days as well. Like, you know, Bedo, I'm sure Bedo just gives the recommendation to the stewards and the, the stewards do the, you know, do the final say. And uh, sometimes, you know, I got my way. Sometimes I didn't get my way. Sometimes they didn't want to do what I wanted to do. Then, uh, but you know, that didn't bother me, you know, like it's, uh, it's their job, like it's uh, you know, the DSO there only to, to just give the recommendation.
3: Look, I think it's um, look, some of the guys were terrific, you know. I, I always used to like, you know, sort of uh, getting um, Rick Kelly or someone like that in because they'd sit down and look at it with you, and you could talk through and they could tell you their ideas and so on, you know. Um, or you would get someone probably. I just can't think now, but, you know, they'll come in and they want to argue with you a little bit about it. But you had a fair amount of, you know, information there that, that you could look at. Um, there was footage you could look at, of course, from the cars and, and not only that, from the cars. Not so much involved in the incident, but the cars that were probably following was often, you know, a better thing to look at. But it was um, something I did. I I sort of always thought that I did it properly. I, I never sort of... Um, fancied anyone in particular, anything like that, so you didn't give them any sort of uh, benefit of the doubt. But, um you no, know, as I said, we did it for 10 years, and, and uh, that was nearly enough, actually.
1: Can you remember any particularly humorous uh, incidents uh, in your time there? Oh, I remember one flurry
2: coming up screaming, and uh, I think it was in Abu Dhabi. I think it was in Abu Dhabi, but, like, uh, you know, but he came up screaming at the buddy's you know stewards not me like i think it was todd or rick kelly or i think it was todd kelly still you know when they run uh, under larry's umbrella then uh yeah I, I think one of them passed the safety car or something you know there was something about the safety car and uh anyway like uh he was in a good position and uh and he had to go to the back of the grid or something then uh, then a few people got a bit agitated there <laughs> in a steward's room, but like yet again, like you know, and another one. I think it was uh, oh Jesus! Uh, it was Ross, uh, Ross Stone. Ross Stone It was on a restart in Darwin when uh, when one guest passed someone before the before the you know before the start line, which you're not allowed to do, you know. Then. Uh, but then again, you know, it was black and white like this. He's uh, the timing beacon, you know, and he was, you know, too tense in front of the car he shouldn't have hit, you know, and uh, the, the people get a bit upset about these things. But at the end, you know, they're the ones they made the rules with the, you know, the V8 supercars and uh, and they gave the rules to the stewards to full follow. And, and to me to police you know like if the blow party what what can be done
1: you know like
2: it's uh, and uh, and uh, and sometimes the people you know they were not happy with the decision like or not accepting the fact they made a mistake but like this is sort of black and white you know then uh, yes maybe stupid rule but uh, again they're the ones they made the rule like Roland Dane is the same, you know. He made the rules, and uh, and then when he gets clipped on those rules, well, he's jumping up and down, you know. So, well, hang on a minute. Like you made those rules, yeah? Then uh, it's uh, and I'm sure it's the same. I'm sure Beto will have few arguments with Roland and uh, and uh, and those sort of high-profile people, but it's all done behind the closed doors and. Uh, the public
3: doesn't need to know it, yeah. Well, probably the reason I left him, <laughs> but it was only because the, the championship round, at Phillip Island, be, between Rick Kelly and, and Craig Lounge, whoever won that particular event, was going to be champion. And um, anyway, I mean, Todd was just in front of Craig, Todd Kelly, and then there was, you know, and then Rick was behind so, coming down into the, I don't know what corner you call it now. The, the tight right hand down the bottom. Onda. Yeah, That'll do. <laughs> and uh, they, um, it looked like as though record sort of he'd come through the corner beforehand a little bit faster than what Craig was doing, and then Craig sort of saw him coming, and then moved to the inside to sort of make it difficult for him. And then he was on the inside and then Todd turned to go around the corner and I honestly think that Craig sort of turned and in doing so, he spun and then got T-boned by another car, which first put him out of the running. And uh, we sort of looked at it and looked at it and we said, well, if we give Rick a drive-through penalty presuming that he, he tapped him in the bum and, and you know, caused him to spin. It's all over and done with, end of story, you know. So we did that. and uh, But then Roland wanted to take it on and on and on because he said but that particular incident, you know, caused whoever won the championship. And we said, well, yeah, the same thing happened in New Zealand, but it was reversed, you know. We, we turned, you know... Uh, loungy around, and we gave them a drive-through penalty. And I said, just be- <laughs> because of the championship, you can't change what's the result of the, you know, you're supposed to do, you know, for that particular incident. So, and that went on for quite a while. But when we actually physically went back and, and got the data from both cars, it didn't appear as though Rick had touched him, because when you looked at the data from both cars, usually... When someone runs in the back of someone, you'll see their car slows down a bit and the car in front speeds up a bit, and um, it didn't happen, you know, on the data. So it was just one of those things, but I just sort of think that um, Roland wasn't that happy because, you know, he lost the championship and he thought it was because, you know, we didn't give a big enough penalty. That, mind you, I I get on well with him, (laughs) but it was just one of those things.
1: That,
0: I mean, that, that's an interesting point that Cole brings up, and, and it's something that I saw during the course of, of my role as well. The mm. championship's not won at the last race. It, it's won over the course of a whole season, um, be it race two at Winton or you mm. know, the final race at Bathurst. So as as the year goes on, you've just got to apply the the rules the way you see them for whatever the incident is. Now, whether that's the last five laps at Bathurst or it's race two at Winton, um, you know, in the middle of the season. It doesn't matter. That's how you've got to apply the, the rules. And that's why, certainly for me, at the start of the season, I sat down and said, how do you guys want to do this? Because how we deal with a decision that happens in, the, in you know, on the championship decider or, or the, mm. the last five laps of Bathurst, we've got to apply that at Eastern Creek at, at uh, or Sydney Motorsport Park, days, at, at Winton, at Darwin, at wherever we are during the course of the championship. And that's what, you know, and you make it fair and reasonable for everyone for the course of the year
1: bugs did you feel more pressure
0: being up in that role than you did sitting in strapped into a car um initially i probably felt a little bit of pressure but once you then started to understand the process not really because you use the same principles to decide if someone's guilty or not um, unfortunately there's times where you know I, I had to deal with teammates crashing into each other i had to deal with um, you know changing people on the podium i had to deal with uh, big big events at Bathurst, like Cole alluded to, uh, situations that end in a, a championship being awarded. But if you go back to the basic principles and say, well, it's got to be fair and reasonable from race one to the end, this is how we're going to apply it, then there's really no pressure because it's just about following the process. What about you, Colin? Was it a pressure cooker up there in the early days?
3: No, not really. As I said before, I've been... <laughs> being referees of the football matches anyway because uh, I played soccer as a kid and so on. But I, I think that um, it's fairly, it was fairly straightforward and, and the fact that I had Peter Wallerman with me too, which was was good. I mean, then you've still got the stewards, by the way. You know, the stewards still make the final decisions if they want it. But what we tried to do in the first place, the, the stewards would do the different stewards every time you went to a race meeting because if you're New South Wales, you use stewards from New South Wales and so on. This is going back now to the two later early days. And we decided that at least if Peter and myself went to all the rounds, you'd start to get some consistency in the rulings between what was right and what was wrong. And 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 that's what finally happened, you know, like later on where the, the stewards and everything else now have the same stewards, same of course and all that sort of stuff for all the race meetings. So the whole thing starts to become a little bit more consistent in the, the way it's operated, the way